0: One of the interesting things about learning different languages is learning euphemisms for things people don't want to say out loud. And in any language, I think, uh, most of the euphemisms, or many of the euphemisms, surround the word death. So in English, we would prefer to say that someone has passed away. He's passed away. Or we might say she went to a better place, or perhaps she's resting in peace. Chinese does the same thing. Ta 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 chu shi. Or for the politically humorous in China, they would say ta chu jian I have no idea where going to meet Karl Marx came from as an expression. (laughs) But I think in any language you'll find that we avoid the word death because it just seems more polite to do so. We don't want to bring down the mood. We don't want to take the conversation in a morbid direction. So we just try to smooth things over a bit. But for the thoughtful, I think we can recognize that that's part of a larger avoidance, a strategy, even if it's an unconscious one. So when we aren't dodging the word death, we might try humor. My dad would always say, it's not dying I'm scared of, I just don't want to be there when it happens. It's his way of making a joke. When I was in college, we would watch the movie The Princess Bride and and laugh as Billy Crystal's character would say of the hero, he's not dead, he's only mostly dead. I remember family reunions where my relatives would joke with each other saying, when when you're gone, can I have your sports car? (laughs) Laughing at something deflates it, cuts it down to size, or so we think. When we aren't dodging it or laughing at it, we sometimes try out some amateur philosophy. We tell ourselves that whatever will happen, will happen. We are resigned to our fate. We're prepared for what's next. Those who have read J.K. Rowling's books will remember Albus Dumbledore saying, to the well-organized mind, death is just the next great adventure. And that sounds reassuring. I think all of these strategies are enabled by the fact that in the modern world, uh, death has largely been removed from view. Uh, the plain fact is that people used to die at home, surrounded by family, extended family, friends. You would grow up witnessing many deaths. Nowadays, it seems most people die in a hospital in a nursing facility of some kind, surrounded by machines, medical professionals. My dad's death was very confusing to me, in part because there were so many people coming in and out of the room. One moment, a a woman was sitting showing me pictures of a hospice care facility. She had a binder with glossy photos, like we were looking for a vacation home or something. And then certain monitors started beeping and People were running into the room. Perhaps his blood pressure had dropped. They began to do CPR until they realized that my dad had a a DNR, a do not resuscitate order. So they disappeared as quickly as they had come. I was alone with dad and my two brothers. We prayed. We walked out. I asked the nurse, "Is, is there anything that I need to do? She said, why? I said, because my dad just died. She said, no, we'll, we'll take care of everything. So I walked to the parking garage and paid my ticket. I was on my way. You know, I don't think any of these strategies work very well. Dodge it, joke about it, philosophize about it, remove it from view. It doesn't change the death rate. Still 100%. Always has been and always will be. Death stalks us. It hides just out of view. As we live, and we eat, we sleep. And that's why the Bible describes it, unless we be delivered as a slavery. We've been held in slavery all our lives to the fear of death. And we're deeply afraid that there is no answer to it. There's no answer to the problem of death. I think even for those that know the Bible does provide an answer, fear can play on our innate skepticism and produce doubt. The church is sometimes wrongly portrayed as a place free from doubt. I can assure you there's plenty of doubt in this room. And doubt is not just unsettling, wrongly dealt with, it can be spiritually crippling. So what do we do with the twin problems of death and doubt? Our text this morning places them squarely in view. And it does it with an up-close profile with one of Jesus' 12 disciples named Thomas, We don't get this kind of an up-close with all of the disciples, so some, like Simon the Zealot or Thaddeus, we we know almost nothing about. But Thomas, in John's Gospel, has a trio of appearances. Earlier in chapter 11, when Jesus decides to head towards Jerusalem where trouble is, he speaks up and says, let's go with him so that we may die with him. He's a serious man, and he's brave. He's brave. And then later in chapter 14, when Jesus tells them that he's going to the Father and will show them the way, Thomas speaks up and says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So he's not just serious and brave, he's practical. But in this third and final appearance, he will earn his nickname, Doubting Thomas. I'll let you decide how fair that is. But let's open our Bibles to John chapter 20, looking at verses 24 through 31. John 20, 24 to 31, turn in your copy of God's Word, or you could use the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 853. This precious text teaches us that Jesus provides the doubting person with reasons to believe. And live. Jesus provides the doubting person reasons to believe and live. And we'll consider that in two points. Number one, the roots of doubt. The roots of doubt. And number two, reasons to believe. Reasons to believe. It's my prayer that God will use this text to increase our trust that Jesus really does give life to the dead. We'll stop there. Uh, Thomas Hamilton helped us consider the death of Jesus from John 19 on Good Friday. I don't know why we didn't have him preach this text. That would have been fitting in some way. But we thought about Jesus' death from John 19. John 20 records the dizzying events of Sunday morning, even as we sung about earlier. At first, Mary Magdalene and then Peter and John visit the empty tomb. Jesus then appears to Mary as she's standing outside the tomb weeping. She runs and tells the others. Then later that evening, Jesus appears to ten of the gathered disciples. Remember, they're in a locked room because they're afraid of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them. He, He showed them his hands and his side. And they go from confusion and sadness to to joy and exhilaration. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. All except for Thomas. As we're told here that he wasn't there that evening. Why wasn't he there? We don't know. Could have been totally circumstantial. He had something to do. Many have wondered if in his grief and despair... Thomas hadn't done what many of us do when we go through sad times and and pull away from the fellowship of others. I've often reflected on how much of the work of pastors is just encouraging struggling people to to keep showing up. Don't, don't, Don't stop coming in your sadness. And that's an underrated thing, friends. The power of showing up. Especially when you're struggling. But we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. Now, I want you to think about this from his perspective. Because the following week had to be exceedingly strange for him. We have no recorded resurrection appearances from that first Sunday to the following Sunday. I mean, when you read in the four Gospels, and then in Acts chapter 1, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, we have a list of quite a few resurrection appearances but but none happens in between that first sunday and as verse 26 says 8 days later so thomas who hasn't seen the resurrected jesus he he's just listened to accounts from other people saying we've seen the lord how would you have felt if you were him torn confused, wrestling? Thomas' conclusion is contained in his famous words here. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is where he earns his nickname Doubting Thomas. But I do wonder how fair this is to him for several reasons. First, he's not the only one to doubt Uh, If you string together the different accounts of the resurrection in in Luke's gospel, when the the women do encounter the angel who asks them, why do you seek for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen just like he told you he's going to. When they go back to the apostles, it says of all of them that they thought this was an idle tale. And they didn't believe them. So they doubted. Later, when Jesus is actually standing in front of them, he asks them, Why do doubts arise in your heart? And famously, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the apostles are gathered together to receive from the Lord that great mandate for missions. It says they worshipped him, but some doubted. So it isn't just Thomas. And this shouldn't surprise us, really let's remember that though we sometimes view ancient people as ignorant you know they they didn't understand modern science and astronomy and microbiology and all sorts of things Uh, we just kind of assume in our chronological snobbery that they were dumb you know like like ancient people couldn't google stuff so so how much could they know right it's kind of the attitude we can have well modern friends ancient people knew quite a lot They didn't need to know the clinical definition of death as a a loss of respiration and and, and no heartbeat and no brain function to know what dead meant. They knew that dead men tell no tales. They they knew that crucified people didn't get up from that and, and push aside a big stone and then come out and chat with people. So they were every bit as likely to doubt a resurrection as we are. The second thing that we should remember is that a certain level of doubt, of skepticism, has always been an essential survival tool. Gullibility has never been safe, has it? It isn't in our day. As a person new to Singapore, I make it a point to read all posters at bus stops and in the MRT. And by far the most frequent advert is telling you not to be scammed in one way or another, right? To watch out for alongs or something else. I mean, don't be scammed. Job scams, e-commerce scams, property scams. When I got my Singtel number, I thought the Ministry of Health was especially concerned about me because they called me every day. No, skepticism is in many respects an essential tool for living. Now, all that said, I don't want to let Thomas or us off the hook. And not wanting to be a fool and not wanting to be scammed is a good thing. But our problem with doubt runs much deeper than that. Because we don't just doubt when we should. We can doubt when belief is well warranted, when it's reasonable, even when it's required we've got to do some self-examination if we're going to get at the root of doubt. Something Tim Keller calls learning to doubt your doubts, lest you, they lead you astray. So let's consider three roots of doubt that we can see right here with Thomas. First of all, our desire to be in control. It's interesting that Thomas says, unless blank, I will never believe. He tries to set the parameters of his own persuasion. That's a very human thing to do, perhaps. We we want to be the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul, but, but think about what that does in relation to our creator. We, the finite, extremely limited in knowledge, essentially dictate terms to the eternal, omnipotent creator of heaven and earth. God, if you're there and you want me to be on your team, if I'm going to believe in you and trust you, here's the way this is going to work. Does that sound right to you? As if he's the one who needs us, not the other way around. This reminded me of what it's like to, to try to get toddlers to eat their dinner. Are any of you there right now with, with young people trying to get them to eat, eat, their, eat their supper? Right? It's a power play. The child realizes that the parents want them to eat. But that they're in control of what goes into their mouth. So they say, I'm not going to eat this, and you can't make me. They feel powerful. But they're they're walling themselves off from nutritious food that they they need, and that doesn't help them. Friends, we should see the folly here of putting conditions on God. Maybe we don't phrase it as negatively as Thomas. God, unless you do blank, I won't blank. Maybe we say to God, if you won't show me a miracle... And I won't believe. But even believing in God, maybe we say, if you won't help me get this promotion, I won't serve in the church. If you won't help me on this test, I won't start reading my Bible again. If you won't provide me a spouse, I won't trust you. Does your doubt come from a desire for control? It's the first root of doubt. The second one we see here is a prioritizing of certain kinds of evidence. Thomas is quite graphic. He, he wants to see with his own eyes, put his fingers in the nail holes inside. I, I picture him listening to the accounts of the resurrection appearances and, and thinking about what he saw Jesus go through on the cross. And as we said, though he, he might not have been able to give a clinical definition of death, he's not a gullible man. Maybe he hears it all as just wish fulfillment. They saw what they wanted to see because they really wanted it to be true. Or maybe they saw a ghost. But he's not that gullible. He wants hard evidence. As a young person, I, I thought of myself as an agnostic. I think mainly because I liked math and science, things that could be verified. I spent a lot of time in my late teenage years in a biotech lab. And, and there was something very enjoyable to me about the scientific method. You, know, you, you move from observations to asking questions about something, which leads you to a hypothesis and testing it. Throughout the whole process, you you exercise a rigorous skepticism to weed out your own biases and preconceived ideas. And then that's how you arrive at truth. Religion just didn't seem to fit into that world to me. What I hadn't really considered until I met a Christian in college is that we believe all sorts of things that can't be tested in a laboratory. Nothing historical can be tested in a laboratory, can it? So you can tell me that Lee Kuan Yew helped found the nation of Singapore, but you can't prove it in a laboratory in that sense. I can give you an eyewitness account that my wife and kids and I were attacked by a band of thirsty macaques on Ubin Island last summer. I can't prove that to you, not in that sense. We could get more heady and, and think about the trouble philosophers have proving all kinds of things. You could spend a few years reading about attempts to prove the existence of other minds. Modern philosophers seem to doubt that anything at all is provable. A radical skepticism that leads people to trust nothing but their own feelings. I think it's healthy for us to be quite suspicious of ourselves here. You know, biblically, the strongest evidences for God are the ones most frequently overlooked. Paul says in Romans 1 that God's existence and nature is actually quite plain. He writes, For what can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. You and I are supposed to look around Realize that all of this didn't come from nowhere. We're even supposed to extrapolate from what creation is like to what God is like. He's powerful. He's wise. He's good. Friends, are you focused on certain evidence to make God prove himself and ignoring the evidence that's right in front of you, the evidence that's all around you? So that's the second problem with our doubts, and it flows from the first Our desire to dictate terms leads to a a preference for certain kinds of evidence while ignoring the evidence that's there. Maybe Thomas fancies himself more reasonable than the rest. But he's ignoring both predictions Jesus made about himself as well as some pretty fantastic eyewitness accounts. But there's a third root of doubt that we see here, and that is despair, despair. Doubt doubt often comes from things that have nothing to do with logic. I mentioned all the doubt that we find in the, the resurrection accounts. Oftentimes the person looking at Jesus doesn't even recognize him, doesn't even realize it's him. And that is all the more surprising because Jesus had spent so much time telling them what was going to happen. When the events unfold, first they're afraid, scattering and running then their despair at the cross, their hopes, their dreams, wrong though they were, had been crushed by what they witnessed. God didn't do what they were hoping God would do. He hadn't met their expectations, and they sunk into despair. That may ring true in your life. It is your doubt, the doubts you struggle with, connected with what you were hoping God will do, would have done and didn't. And I think despair helps us make sense of what's happening to Thomas. Uh, I think it's a bit off to just paint him as the the reasoned skeptic, the logical man. What I think blinded him from what Jesus had told him and what the disciples were all testifying to had more to do with despair than logic. With sadness not science. And, you know, doubt and despair are bedfellows. I don't mean that one always leads to the other. Sometimes despair leads right to faith. But a crushed dream can cause everything in life to seem dark. Like someone has turned out the lights in the house and you can't find the switch to turn them back on. Friend, if that's you this morning, realize that you have good reason to doubt your doubt. Because all hope is not Lost, Just like there are reasons to doubt your preferential treatment of the evidence and reasons you should doubt your own putting conditions on God. So three roots of doubt, but let's press on and consider, secondly, reasons for believing and pick it up in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So here we are eight days later. This is the following Sunday. I I agree with those who have pointed out that, that John is making the point. Jesus appeared to them on consecutive Sundays. It's the start of what will become the pattern of the early church. So in Acts, we'll read that they gather on the first day of the week to break bread, meaning to take the Lord's Supper. Find that the church in Corinth was gathering on the first day of the week. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, the Sunday is just known as the Lord's Day. That's why we're here. Notice the doors are still locked, they're still afraid. The unleashing of Holy Spirit power on the day of Pentecost is what will finally send them forth with courage. But this time, Thomas is here. Jesus speaks first to the group, then to Thomas individually, and then actually to all of us. And John the Evangelist then finishes with this purpose statement of his entire gospel there in verses 30 and 31. I want to unpack this by observing that we have here three reasons for believing. Three voices that you can reliably listen to to confront your doubt. The signs, the seeker, and the savior. First, the signs. In verse 30, John, the author, says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. So, What we just read about Jesus appearing again to the disciples, and particularly to Thomas, is a sign. And readers of John's gospel are well familiar with that language. Because all the way back in John chapter 2, Jesus did the miracle of turning water into wine. The wedding of Cana in Galilee. And John called it there the first of his signs, which manifested his glory. The next 10 chapters all form around one sign after another. So Jesus heals the royal official's son in chapter 4. He heals a paralyzed man in chapter 5. Chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 and walks on water. Chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, which seemed to be the climax But now we see here, this is the climax of the signs, his own resurrection. All of these are signs that witness to the identity of Jesus and the truth of the gospel message. Now we could say, but we weren't there to witness them. Well, John says, I wrote them down as an eyewitness. The other 12 apostles are eyewitnesses as well. Jesus really did these things. Now, I guess many claims of this sort could be made by religious leaders about having performed miracles. But uniquely, this group of witnesses, this group of eyewitnesses, went to their deaths for the claim that they saw the signs, including this greatest sign of the resurrection. And what that that means for us, at the very least, is that we should see the folly of trying to smoosh all religions together, as if they're all saying the same thing. I mean, that's what I hear most frequently when I'm talking to a, a taxi driver, a grab driver. All religions are the same. We're all climbing the mountain of faith from different sides. When a person says that, they're only telling me that they've never, they've never read this. Because once you read this, you, you realize why Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's claiming an exclusivity through what he has done and what he has taught us. So the signs, especially the greatest sign of the resurrection, testified to by the apostles, are the first reason to believe. But there's a second here, the testimony of the seeker. So thinking again about Thomas, and I want us to picture the scene again. Thomas has been on record all week saying he isn't going to believe unless. I find it so encouraging and useful that and always doubting, he's still with the other disciples. That's a great application point for us, friends. The doubter is still in church. He shows up with his doubts. But still, this has to be a point of tension, right? We've seen the Lord. No, you haven't. I mean, what would that have been like in their relationship all week? Well, Jesus shows up again. And he says the same thing he had said a week earlier. Peace be with you. Just like last Sunday. Just like they all said. And then he turns to Thomas. What does he say? Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And That's what leads Thomas to say, My Lord and my God. And that statement right there is the climax of the book. Nobody else states it as clearly as Thomas does. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the very living, breathing human person who lived in the first century and caused a stir by starting a religious movement, was executed by Rome, was in fact, is in fact, God in the flesh, fully man fully God. There's no agreement to be found here with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who believe Jesus to be a created being. This is one of the first places I would go, along with John chapter 8, where the Jews clearly understood Jesus to be making himself equal with the Father. Thomas makes it personal. My Lord and my God. But for our purposes here, let's remember that this expression of the full deity of Jesus Christ first finds that expression on the lips of the doubter. I think that that should tell us that there's there's something healthy about working through your doubts to conviction. The man who asked for evidence didn't slink off from the community. But he stayed in there. And I think we see something of the way that God deals with the seeker. Not the proud skeptic, or the one whose purpose is to mock and ridicule, but the true seeker, the true struggler for faith. What does Jesus do? He offers Thomas what he asked for. And you you know what that means? He heard what Thomas had said the previous Sunday, even though he wasn't there. I think that's why Thomas doesn't do what he said he had to do. You notice that he never actually reaches out and does it. I mean, seeing may have been believing for him there, but but he knows that Jesus was there the week earlier too. And that convinces him. He was dictating terms to the Almighty, but the Almighty is gracious to him. He meets him where he, he's at. So, let's take the encouragement That as Jesus said, those who ask will receive, those who seek will find, those who knock the door will be opened to them. What else are we supposed to take from this? I mean, why is this text even here if not to say, bring your doubts to the Lord? God is not threatened by you and your questions. Signs give us eyewitness testimony. Thomas, the seeker, gives us encouragement and motivation. The third reason to believe here is the most powerful, and that's the Savior himself. For two Sundays in a row after his death on the cross, Jesus shows up saying the same thing. Peace be with you. That probably sounds like just a greeting to us. It's more than that. There's a re- reason why all those letters in the New Testament begin by saying grace and peace. Most churches in China begin their services by saying There's a reason for that. Because peace with God is at the heart of it all. You and I are not naturally at peace with God. If we're honest, we'd admit that we've lived our lives in enmity with him. We've lived for ourselves, not for Him. We do what we want to do. We follow the desires of our hearts. And this is no small thing, though we we tell ourselves perhaps that we haven't done this or that terrible thing. We can always find that person out there that's worse than us. We may tell ourselves, peace, peace, I have peace with God. But there is no peace. Unless and until the law of God can be perfectly satisfied us. It is sin, sin, death, death and judgment, judgment. It is not peace. It has to be because God is a just judge. We are guilty sinners. But on that cross where Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. And so Jesus says peace Be with you. Our world is filled with warfare. So many countries know the horror of war. Very few are left that remember the horror of World War II. Some do here, I suppose. So it's perhaps lost on us the exhilaration of peace when it finally comes. Dancing in the streets. The relief the joy, but to a heart that knows what it's like to feel the weight of alienation from our maker and our judge. The coming of the Savior to offer peace through believing ought to have the same effect. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Peace with God, which leads to life in his name. It's not abstract. It's not theoretical. It's not rhetorical. He means life. The opposite of death. That death which stalks us all. Death which is daily one day closer. Death which holds us all in the slavery of fear. Death, which we dodge and avoid and make jokes about and philosophize about, but we just can't shake it. Death is replaced with life. How? Well, the Son of God went back to that point where death entered the world, disobedience to the divine word. And he took the just penalty against that disobedience on himself. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And having exhausted the penalty, he then rose from the dead, conquered it as a defeated enemy, and he offers it to you and to me if we will believe. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe.